And I'm Carrie. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crack. This is our third best of awards in which we are recognizing the best things that we read in 2021. We're going to take some time to acknowledge the best characters, the moments, the books that we read for the book club in 2021. If you've been following our cast, most of these are going to come as very little surprise and should be familiar to you. Due to the nature of our awards, it's almost impossible for this to be spoiler-free for the episode. We will announce the book before we say the award that it's coming from, and then we'll try to keep them around one to two minutes-ish. If you haven't read a book and you want to avoid spoilers, just kind of skip ahead until we get to the next one. Uh, be sure you check out any posts in the accompanying casts for any books that intrigue you, and maybe you'll find something new that you didn't read this year. But that, let's dive in. All of the things that made 2021 great because Lord knows we needed some things to help 2021 along. What are you talking about? 2021 was the best. Just the best. You and I had very different 2021s. So. Sarcasm since failing. Let's have our favorite bro slash romance. Now, this is an award we do every year. It can be either a romantic coupling or a platonic friendship that just really stood out to us. Classic examples of bromances would be like Uriel and Pythidius. Hmm? I don't want your example of a of a romance. Oh. Actually. Because I know where you're going to go and I just know. I'm going to talk about a classic example of a romance here in a minute. <laughs> Anyways, favorite bromance or slash romance. Carrie. Kick us off. Who is your favorite romantic, bromantic couple? Oh, that would be a Mr. Caiaphas Kane and a Miss Amberly. Don't remember her last name. Vale. Vale. From the Caiaphas Kane series. Yes. Just take your pick, whichever book. Pretty much. What made them so amazing to you this year? Uh, just because they're so funny. And honestly, it was because... So they were never very implicit. Like Caiaphas Cain never really came out and said anything. It was anything you got from it was all in Amberly's notes. And I love that it was the first time was very subtle when she was like, she's like, yes, he would talk in his sleep. I'm like, you would? How would you know that? <laughs> you know. Picking up what you're laying down here, sister. You know, because he uh, wasn't really part of the story. I guess. And I think, honestly, he wouldn't have said that in his memoirs because that might have not put her in a good light. In a way, he was very respectful. That's what I think. I could be totally wrong. But but yeah, so that was probably my favorite romance. And I just thought of another one that I... It's like only in my head. But it's also from Caiaphas Kane. It's uh, Brokelaw and Castine. Oh my god, yes. Like, just do it already. <laughs> Now kiss. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. I think that's a pretty common one. Um, that was a good one, too. So Caiaphas and Amberly are my honorable mention for those reasons. There's just something very sweet about it. And they're both very cunning, crafty characters who choose their words very well. So it's funny to me that he is very reserved about it, right? Like, he mentions how he was like, oh, my God, she was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And then, like, we went out to dinner. And then, like, when she cuts it off, right? Like, there are times when she's like, mm, we don't need to talk about this. But arguably, she's more forward than he is. Right. In the memoir. Which makes it kind of, okay. 
which I think also makes it fun for them. So they are my honorable mention. They're the classic romance of Warhammer 40k. In fact, for a really long time, I think you could argue they were the romantic coupling of Warhammer 40k. I can see that from back in the day. Mm-hmm. My favorite bromance of the year is, and this is forever in a day, it's my classic example. It's Uriel and Pisanias. Those two are just like BFF goals. Um, mm. For me, the thing that cemented it was in Sword of Kalf when he, you know, there's that scene when they could go and rescue those people. And Uriel's like, nope, that's not mission critical. We got to go do something else. And Pisanias just calls him right out and is like, what the hell has happened to you? And he just, but it's like, and everybody's kind of like, ooh, like you just called out your captain in public. But Pisanias, and Uriel even has that moment of, I'm sorry, what? But then like that friendship kind of overtakes that scene, mm -hmm. right? And just the whole time, the way Pisanias just cares for his friend and watching those two in action again, just felt like everything was right in the world like i know that it, like 2021 was kind of a crazy year and reading that book and getting to that's like that just relationship and watching that friendship there again i was like things are gonna be okay yuriel <laughs> and basanius are riding into action again this is all fine <laughs> absolutely love them together they're just a great friend group who was your honorable mention? So my honorable mention was, uh, you know, almost in the line of your stupid giant soulless babies. And that's obviously a match that's never going to happen, but... Call them stupid. Yeah. I'm so wounded. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, anyway. It is a Goonlogger and De Chatelaine. Um, just like, he just cared for her so much. And his reaction when he first sees that she's put in the machine. Like, that is more... I know the Space Wolves actually care about the humans more than most other Space Marines. Definitely more than the Ecclesiarchy or the Inquisition, as we have seen in the past. Right. But that reaction, just that overly passionate, very angry reaction, is like, yes, she didn't deserve that. Yes, he's angry about that. But he lost a friend as well. He did, and I think it, part of it was that respect there, that, mm -hmm. like, we don't like the sororitas, but that woman, yeah, that scene was still heartbreaking. Yeah. I guess I should mention what book that was from. That's from Stormcaller. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that was a very, oh, man, that was a hard one. Yes. That was a really hard one. That's an older book, so I don't feel quite as bad with a little bit of a spoiler. Um, I did like when he basically puts her down, like, gives her the old yeller treatment. Right. Well, sad, after also. she uh, has the best revenge killing ever. I mean, my God. All I could think about was that uh, there's an old episode from the Powerpuff Girls. Okay, Buttercup, you got him. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, my gosh. So our favorite quotes. Now, this is, these are just lines that just stuck in our brains because they were either particularly well-written, sassy, or just memorable for some reason or another. My favorite this year is from The Hellwinter Gate by Chris Raitt. And it was just, it just summed up the Space Wolves. And it was, it was uh, the scene was Ingvar is talking to Gunlogger. 
and they're going to Cadia, and they're kind of just talking about their place in the world. And Ingvar says, talk so to So this a is from uh, Hellwinter Gate. Yes. Uh, talk to a guardman, guardsman sometime. Tell them to name the Holy Primarchs. They'll know the name of Sanguinius. If they're pious, maybe a few more. But then mention Russ and see them smile. See them grin like he's looking down on them. And if you're in the trenches with blood falling out of the sky, ask them who they'd rather have going over the top with them. A blood claw who'll die roaring or a dark angel who never said a word to them the whole time. And it was just... I love that too. Mainly because of the dig at the time. Gotta do the, get those digs in at the dark angels, the space wolves. I mean, it's hilarious. It, it I mean, is. it's true. It's 100% true, but it's still hilarious. It's just very on brand for the space wolves, right? Like, where I'm giving you a meaningful speech about how awesome we are and how much we hate the dark angels and how much they suck. Uh, he's still getting that little jab in there. But it is, like... It, we we hear so much, especially in this book series, we had learned about like why so many people have troubles with the space wolves and why they're constantly at odds with everybody and why, 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 like all of these like bad things. So I liked when he was like, but here's our strength. Our strength is that we care about people, but the people know that and they love us. Like they recognize that we're crazy. And uh, I loved the idea that yeah most space marines and we've seen this and again this kind of goes back to the thing i was talking about with uriel and Pisanias. space marines just don't really care they just don't and but the blood the space wolves do and people know that and i love that that's actually that one thing that actually set dante aside like kind of separated him out from the other blood angels mm-hmm. was uh the one time that he was with humans. He was trying to protect this group of humans. They were all going to die and something happened and he went into the red thirst. He didn't remember anything. But right. they, but he survived along with the rest of the blood angels and a few humans, but the humans wouldn't come anywhere near him. And when he found out what happened, which is obviously the red thirst, he started basically killing people and that's actually what ended up saving them was because he did that. He was so ashamed like he could not go in front of the humans ever again. And the rest of the blood angels were like, what is wrong with you? It's just how it, you saved everybody because of this. And he was like, at what cost? So that's one reason why Dante is like so set apart from a lot of, a lot of the blood angels. The dark angels, you don't have anybody who's really out to save the humans. The ultramarines, they are more diplomatic than most. But they have to work at it. Like Marnius Calgar is probably the only of the current ultramarines i'm talking about robbie bobby but like a, like marnius calgar and now maybe um um cato sicarius you know that he's kind of developed it but he marnius is really big on we got to protect the humans but all the ultramarines they have to really work at it space wolves don't have to work at it they know it's like this is what we're supposed to do we're supposed to help them and if shit if you need any proof on that just go read uh ragnar blackman <laughs> and what they were willing to risk and lose over protecting a group of humans mm-hmm. who'd happen to be at the wrong place in the wrong time more or less i feel like that's warhammer 40k in a i was just thinking that as well it's like eh, i think everybody in warhammer 40k is in the wrong place in the wrong time <laughs> yes yeah i uh, 
No, you're absolutely correct. And it is one of the things. And I like that the idea of there's there's this idea of Lehman Russ, like within like if you think about like Sanguinius the Space Jesus, and then as all of the other Primarchs, right? Like I like the idea that Lehman Russ is like this fun kind of trickster one, right? Like they might not be able to name Vulcan and Ferris Manus. I mean, can you blame them? Um, and like all those other ones, but oh, they know Lehman Russ. Well, I mean, and they got tanks named after him, so it's kind of hard to not know who he it's is. It's kind of hard not to know about him, right? Yeah. But just this idea that he is, yeah, just like trickster patron saint of, I like to imagine him being like the patron saint of Last Call, of Last Stands. And last calls. I was gonna say last calls. I was kind of accurate too. <laughs> kind of. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> at the bar, everyone. Tell him and Russ. Feel like that at two in the morning when you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. What was your favorite quote of the year? So my favorite quote was from Kay's advice, and it was actually like really, really long. So that's why I just, I just kind of wrote that on there. So this is a lovely scene. Uh, in, early on in Cave's advice. When Caiaphas Kane and Castine and Broklaw are meeting with the lovely leaders of this planet, who are not, it's like they don't understand they're about to be killed by orcs. <laughs> so, uh, so Castine's like, that's it. I'm putting everything now on martial law. And, and so, uh, this is unacceptable, Pryke said, her voice tight with outrage. Live with it, Castine said, unless you prefer the alternative. I most certainly do. Pryke glared at both of us. Fine. I drew my, la my last pistol, dropped it on the table from just the right height to produce a nicely resonant thud. Under the powers bestowed upon me by the commissariat in the name of his divine majesty, I serve notice that any civilian obstructing his forces in the defense of his realm will be subject to summary execution under Article 17 of the Rules of Military Justice. I raised an, inter an interrogative uh, eyebrow at Pryke. You were saying? I withdraw my objections, she said tightly. Ronolf nodded too. Honestly, because when I got to that, I burst out laughing. And I read that out loud to my husband. And he was like, well, that's one way to make a point. Right. I, I just imagine just... The gun's like, whoa. Shit just got real, son. It also shows, though, like, the world, right? Like, everybody likes to kind of flex. Right. And, oh, no, this is the way of the world. And, oh, really? Because here's the actual rules. And it's so funny to me how quickly everyone's like, ah, yes, so they are. Like, once... We've seen this in so many books, right? Where somebody, like, they throw out this massive flex and somebody comes back with, you don't understand what's going on here. And then you just see them kind of shirk back, like, mm, carry on. Well, it's also, I also really like that because it was, like, one of those few moments that we see Caiaphas Kane just really standing in charge. You know, and he keeps saying, he's like, oh, I'm a commissar because I want an easy life. You don't do things like that. You could have let the colonel handle it. She's more than capable, but no, you had to drop drop your thing. So it was a very commanding point from him. And it kind of shows just how strong the imposter syndrome is with him. Since, mm -hmm. like, he is a great leader. 
and he really does and i know that we're going to talk about this scene here in a like in a little while but he does have that in him and like when it comes to that kind of stuff oh yeah he absolutely stands up and is like here's all the rules and regulations and how this actually goes and it shows that for all of his bluster and all of his oh i'm just trying to save my own skin nah nah you really are a pretty damn good leader right and you know how to handle people you are and which also i mean let's be real he kind of is a master manipulator right but like yes. good and bad it's probably a, what, probably one of the few commissars where his regiments love him. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Because even with um, what's her face, Severina Rain. Oh, they didn't trust her. Mm-mm. Like they kind of some of them begrudgingly liked her. Okay. I think no, I don't think they liked her. I think they were they might have respected her. Yeah, I guess begrudgingly respected her, and some of them were like, eh, "You don't seem bad." For a commissar. For a person who's going to put a bullet in my head if I so much as blink at the battlefield. You know, it's it's a hard role. And he he also shows, I think, why people like him so much, too. I mean, honestly, of all the roles to pick, if you're a coward, a commissar was not really one of them. No, no, not really. You should be pushing papers somewhere, like, in the administratum. Right. Let's be real. Eating your so, food paste. and Anyway. Uh, uh, mm. starch. Mm. Anyways. So my honorable mention goes to silent hunters. And it was just one of those phrases that just tickled me. And it's with Utak when he first encounters the space marines. And he thinks to himself, to think that the galaxy had come under the sway of creatures such as these lumpen, uncouth, uncultured, speaking a language which all had all the mellifluousness of gargled grapple. And I like we like we read a couple of books this year actually where people were like, Ugh, humans, like why are they a thing? Why are they the dominant race? And I just and we've always kind of talked because, about how the Jakari Because they didn't murder fuck a god into existence. I mean, just throwing that well, out there's there. There's also there's also that. But like we've all we've talked about this, like the great it's grey gardens. The Jakari are the grey gardens of living in squalor, but they still think they're aristocrats. Right. <laughs> in some ways they are the very living embodiment of that joke, the aristocrats. Like they are the aristocrat joke brought to life. And that one in particular, like there's a whole scene, that whole scene with him dealing with the Space Marines just is amazingly wonderful and petty from him. But that in particular, where he's just like, ugh, these things? Like, ugh. And I just, I love the way he describes Gothic. Sounding like gargled gravel. Because you always think of it as, like... Well, you know, I mean, you know, because I studied Latin for a long time, and it's not a language you really speak, because it's really hard um <laughs> for sure yeah and it's just and it's also the reason why it's hard is just because of i won't get into many details but because of all the declensions and the conjugations you have to remember for all these different words that's really the only reason why it's so hard it's just because of that but it's not a pretty language like if you hear it spoken latin is not a pretty language so i could totally hear why they'd say high gothic is not would sound like <laughs> gargled gravel because it's not a pretty sounding language at all it's not but it 
it tickles me because Latin is the mother language for all of the romance languages, right? So French and Spanish and Portuguese, like you hear Italian, Italian, you hear them and you're like, ooh, so pretty, right? And so they, I like the idea that like the language that birthed the languages that we think of as being very fluid and melodic like if you've ever heard like if you've ever just sat around and listened to a bunch of people speaking in Spanish it just it flows so smoothly often mm-hmm. smoother than English right and to them to be like Ugh, just gar- gravel <laughs> like I mean what? honestly if they spoke German I might understand that a little bit more if it's Germanic, I'd be like, accurate thing is accurate. Yeah, I mean, because... Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's not... Either a Ger- Germanic or a Slavic language, because both of those always just sound very angry. doesn't matter what you're saying. Just sound, they just sound angry. Languages that have the glottal, that huh noise. Like, um, uh, Hebrew. Hmm. That is not a pretty language either, because there's a lot of that uh, in right. there. That just, yeah, that sounds like gargled gravel. It's just I don't know. It's one of those things that I'm always like, just to hear them. Like no, those are we regard those to actually be kind of pretty. <laughs> like, sorry. What was your honorable mention for favorite quote this year? So my honorable mention came from Gazkol Thraka. There were other people in the galaxy, the chief explained, who sometimes tried to own places that rightfully belonged to orcs, which was to say all of them. And honestly, it's like, you know what? I just think I now understand orc culture 100% just from that one sentence alone. Yeah. You know, between that and in Brutal Cunning with uh, Uthak saying like, Humans don't make any sense because why do they, if they don't want their stuff stolen, why do they make it all shiny? You know, just between like those two statements, like, oh, okay, I totally get orc culture now. Basically, yes. And that book in general really gave us like an insight to, because God's Kulthraka is more of a thinky orc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like these people are on the planets that are ours because we just haven't gotten there yet. Right. awesome and orky and definitely coming from Makari right good good discussion there so okay I had to laugh about this because this should be come as no surprise to anyone but we have different scenes for our favorite funniest scene but from different they're from the same book What's your uh, no they're not from the same book okay Yours is from Caves of Ice. No, mine's from for, mine's from um, for the Emperor. Okay. Hmm. What's your favorite scene? My favorite scene is the when Caius Kane breaks up the fight over the plates. For just a lot of reasons. One, because they're fighting with plates, and it's getting nasty. Like. And when he tries to, like, sneak away and someone calls out to him, he turns around and he's like, You! Clean that up! You! Go clean that up! Just immediately takes command and it confuses everybody. They're like, oh, 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 oh. okay, I guess I, I, I will, will clean it up. 
which was the smartest thing he could have done. Because if he tried to engage, he might, he probably would have gotten killed because the blood was just that high up in there, which would have been bad for everybody. Kill a commissar, bad things generally happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's just such a... It's for something that was so scary. It was so such an insane way of handling it, and it worked. Well, and it it's funny on a couple levels because it's funny because the whole scene is so absurd and his internal dialogue is hysterical but he's like oh god they've seen me now i'm gonna have to do something oh god and then he takes but it also shows what again what a brilliant leader he is and why people like him so much right because they expect him to start shooting right and he's just like clean this up do this do that it so it's funny on those two levels honestly he's the this is probably, you know, that's actually probably why he's liked so much because he's not one to just start shooting and killing people. He's like the king of de-escalation. Pretty much, yes. He knows he can read a room, which makes him such a good commissar because he can read his room, he can read the people, he knows what is going to work. And, and then that scene continues, right, where he's like, I got an idea we're just going to make two entirely new regiments. Like we're going to, we're going to break up these existing things. And again, cause, but it makes all of his like, Oh man, I'm just trying to save my own skin. Like, no, you're not like, you're actually yeah. really good at this. Because it's actually like a couple pages later when they're talking and he's like, well, that's it. You guys are just all merging into, you know, the 597th. And they're like, Oh, uh, uh. like, no, we can't. It's like, all right. I also hear that the 58th penal legion is open. <laughs> that's just... And everyone's like, <laughs> You know, I like this idea. we either combine or we become part of a prison legion. That sounds great. <laughs> like, right. That's, but again, it works uh, on two different levels. Right. No, so mine's from, from for the end of For the Emperor. The whole scene plays out so chaotically because you've got the gene stealers. You have the Tau. He comes up into that mansion towards the end of it, right? Realizes that the governor is hiding a third arm and he's like, Oh, that's how he shot that guy. Oh my gosh. And he's just sitting there and he's like, I'm I'm at ground zero of gene stealers. And the tower like, whoa, 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 what is this? Like, and the whole time with him just being like, mm-hmm. yep, this is par for the course. Like, it's so funny because it's just like this series of like comical escalations. And then all of a sudden, again, it's Caiaphas Kane just being like, yep, this is about, yeah. And it, it made me laugh so much that whole scene because you could picture it unfolding like a movie scene. Right. You really could just this, what is going on right now? I like those type of like madcap. Everything's just going crazy at the end. Right. Uh, so that one played very well with me. And every time I think about it, I just <laughs> start laughing because I can picture him coming up out of this mansion and being like, huh? Right. Three armed dude. The tarot, gene stealers. What next? Absolutely love that scene. It, again, just cracks me up. I, though, almost picked your honorable mention. Ah, yes. From Silent Hunters. When, uh, I, I should have looked up this guy's name, but the, uh, the drug addict, Drukari. I think it's Merrick. Merrick? Yeah, I was just looking this up because I almost chose it. 
where he, uh, where Slanesh is coming through and having a snack. Andrew Kari eats his soul and then spits it back out because he's just that nasty. Like, man, I can't imagine how. Even Slanesh is like, whoo, yeah, no thanks. No thanks. That's going to cause indigestion today. (laughs) (laughs) I got enough Jukari. I got enough Jukari souls. I don't need this one. This one's no good. I mean, because it was such a, it was such a serious book. Very Very heavy, very serious. And the Karkirinans are not funny people. No. Um, They are not a humorous group. And the Jukari can be funny. They can be in just how ridiculous they are. But this was amazing. Just this little nugget in the middle of nowhere. It's like, wow, that that's insane. Like, imagining just this chaos god. Just like, oh, nope. Sending that one back. He who thirsts. The literal embodiment of hedonism. But, like, hedonism taken to the bad, yes. bad version. Not that there's a good version of hedonism, but you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, her whole purpose is to eat the souls of the Jukari. Like, that's basically her whole game. And yeah, she was, as you said, murder-fucked into existence, and that guy, mm, 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 no, no. <laughs> bad taste, bad taste! Yeah. That's, it's, and it works on a couple, again, that one also works on a couple of levels, because, What? What? Like, there's kind of a horror there, right? Of, oh my god. Right. But also, it's just funny. Because he's just like, eh. Like, shrugs it off like nothing happened. Like, yep, this wasn't my time today. Cool. I can go get more drugs. (laughs) He's actually funny throughout the entire book. Because he also has that scene where um, the guys are, like, looking at him. And he's like, ah, you're wondering if it's worth it. It totally is. (laughs) Like... Oh man! You know the reason, but the reason why he was funny was because he just he knew his lot in life and accepted it and didn't care. He just did not care, which is why you know, and because they were all avoiding. Yes, they were all drug addicts. They knew Slanesh was coming, but they wanted to have like a lot of pleasure and peacefulness before that day came. So that's why they kept you know doing these drugs the whole time. And he's terrified, as anybody would be, when your soul's about to be consumed. And, but then she spits him back out, and he's just like, well, well, cool. <laughs> that happened. Actually, he's, you get the impression he's largely unfazed by it. Yeah. Which also makes it funny, because everybody else is like, what? And, nope, not him. Did not affect him. It was just like, you know, like, you tripped on the sidewalk and you're like, oh, nobody saw. My honorable mission also deals with demons, kind of. That's I mean, that's an actual chaos god, but it's Gosgul fighting the demon. When he shows up and there's, the, I think it's the blood letter, and he's just like, yeah, like, so excited. And they talk about him basically hitting it. And then he, like, kicks it back into the warp portal and is like, is that all you've got? Hilarious. Laughed so hard it was so on brand for the orcs in general but also the idea of this like i just kind of like i felt bad for the corn demon because like it shows up and oh man it is here to mess some people up and it is gonna win oh no this thing's not even scared wait what 
Like, Why are you scared? Huh? <laughs> She's scared of me, bruh. But also, similar to that scene in Watchers of the Throne, I always really like when the demons come across something that isn't necessarily affected by them because it doesn't have a soul. Like the orcs don't have souls. So they're really right. of no interest. And they're certainly not like when they talk about like the like and again with Watchers of the Throne, they talk about like the blood raining from the sky and stuff, and she's just like, nah, this place just sucks. Right. Like these guys are just big ugly monsters and there's nothing scary about them really. Um I really imagine Gosgul's Raka being like that too. But also he has that like biggest baddest thing there is. Well, you know, he kind of reminded kind of reminded me there of Hulk and uh, Thor Ragnarok. When it's like when he's oh yes, he's like the big monster. Like this is what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to go attack the big monsters. It didn't matter how big and scary this thing is. It's big monster. Nope. Yep. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was just a funny scene, and it played really well. The whole book had just great on-point humor without going too over the top mm -hmm. but that scene in particular again I like a good scene where I can like picture it in my head mm -hmm. and that one was just perfectly cinematic you can just picture him standing there that's all you've got kicking it back into the warp and I just imagine him being like no never mind we're done I don't, don't want to play with you guys anymore <laughs> this, <laughs> isn't this, fun anymore. Not, this isn't fun anymore I'm not liking this <laughs> talk more about that in a bit here so the next thing is our biggest oh my god scene mm. now this is a scene that we're figuratively or literally had our jaws just agape or like we were unable to comprehend the scene or it just stuck with us because i was as the children would say shook and you know so for me and it's funny because i think we both have the exact same scene just slightly just different pieces different. of it different pieces of it it comes from god blight and for me the scene is when the emperor Im basically possessing robbie bobby for a hot minute talks over mortarian to nurgle it's a great scene and it just left me going the whole time i was reading it because i just feel so bad for mortarian mortarian got stuck with a really crappy stepdad he drew a really crappy first first captain he pretty much got the short end of the stick for most of the most of that like a lot of the stuff just does not go his way and if you remember in the first dark imperium book just dark imperium um he's talking with robbie bobby and he says he's like oh yeah, did you figure out that dad doesn't care about us? Did you put two and two together there? Because that's a thing. The emperor does not care about you. I found someone who loves me. Mm -hmm. The fact that the emperor then talks over Mortarian to be like, yeah, I see you pulling his chain and I'm coming for you. Doesn't even acknowledge Mortarian, really, right? Just kind of talks over him and you could just picture like a, dad, like a parent talking over their child to the other kid. Right, like, leave my kid alone. Right. And yeah, when he threatens Nurgle, like, he talks directly to Nurgle, like, I'm coming for you. I'm, I'm not done with you people. And then sends Mortarion to his room without dinner. After he sets fire to Nurgle's lawn. The Black Mance. Just, 
Oh, again, talk about a cinematic moment. Well, actually, that was one that, like, I have trouble picturing with the, like, the Black Vance to me just literally looks like a burned down, like, plantation house or something like that. Uh, I have trouble picturing Nurgle himself. So the idea of, like, glowing Bobby, Robbie Bobby talking over, it was just such a good insult. It was such a, although I don't think it really did much for the argument that of dad of the year well no i haven't talked to you in ten thousand years and i'm still not talking to you he did betray him he did i did like when mortarian's like father yeah Yeah, that's right yours is just a little bit different though like it's a slightly different flavor of that. yeah it's a basically i think it's later actually it's even after that scene it's basically where it gets confirmed that oh by the way the emperor is waking up right and that for me was the whole was my you know wtf moment and like oh my god cut because um because that changes everything right it was one thing when robbie bobby woke up that already changed everything but the idea that the emperor is waking up and is going to come back in some form now this might be in 10 years from now but the fact that meta wise right yeah. well i mean in our time <laughs> 10 years right. in our time it may happen um but it's still just it's huge it's huge and it also this is the whole thing just kind of changes how much because we haven't seen yet how that's going to change robbie bobby going forward because with this indomitus series where the uh uh dawn of fire series that's before all this Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see, like, when we're, I guess, when we're done with the Dawn of Fire and we're able to move forward, like, how much does all of this change? Just really just probably from your scene on through the rest of the book was just such a everything's changing. Everything is changing. And I think we all kind of made that assumption. Like, I think we Not all... to that point, though. Mm-mm. Not to that level. level. Yeah. Like, I think, and I think it makes, there's some synchronicity to it, right? Because they always talked about how Gulliman was healing inside that stasis field. Mm-hmm. But we were always like, mm, but is he though? No, totally was. Um, he's alive now. Um, and I think everybody kind of assumed that, yes, the emperor, like eventually someday he will wake up. And I don't think anybody actually wants that to happen. Like for realsies happen. But the idea that, oh yeah, no, no. <laughs> Not only is he definitely still alive. Someone's twitching in there. I mean, to the point that he's possessing Robbie Bobby. And they even talked about how even Robbie Bobby says he would see, like, all, like, basically, like, the form didn't stay, which we've always talked about how everyone sees the Emperor in a different way. So just the form kept changing as he was seeing him. And he realized, like, this is who it is. This is what is happening. And not only that, but it changes everything for Robbie Bobby. It's going to change everything what he does going forward. And I think that's a big reason why. There's two reasons why he wasn't going to push for uh, Father Matthew not to be called a saint. One, because it would have done more harm than good if he was against it. But two, you can't deny it now. Right. I don't think Father Matthew's not a saint in the the typical saint sense. Like we think of like uh, uh, Celestine or or as Sabat or whatever. But 
Uh, but the emperor did, and, much as it kills me, yes, he did give Frodo Matthew a task, something that he that he needed to do. So he is a saint in that he did do that, and he ended up saving them all in the end, all Black Cauldron style. But uh, but now Robbie Bobby can't deny what his father is. Even if he wants to say, yeah, he was just, he was an incredible psyker. Okay, fine, you can say that, but he's kind of half dead. So something is going on there. And that that's going to open a whole series of uncomfortable conversations now. Right? Because, dude, you had me burn my brother's planet to the ground because you weren't a god and you didn't want to be worshipped as one, but... Like, I just experienced something pretty divine. It, it's going to be real hard. Like, there's going to just be a lot of questions. Right. Well, I mean, Bob and it's forward. just like, well, is Amper going to sit down with him? No. And explain no. to him why he didn't want to be worshipped. And the reason why was because he saw uh, Earth, countries, nations burn over religion. So even if he yeah. was divine, he's like, I don't want them there to be a religion because I, all I've seen is war over it. So I'm just going to create war to unify everybody instead, but not not to worship me. Right, for sure. It's a it's an interesting one, and it's I mean, it's like the whole scene and the whole concept. Him telling the chaos god directly, "I'm coming for you." Mm -hmm. Other people are saying, "Dude, he's waking up." Even Mortarian uh, going, "Oh crap! Did I back the wrong horse?" Back the wrong horse, Mother Fletcher. Yeah, you just, your whole life is like a series of bad decisions. Should have killed Typhon, just saying. Seriously. My honorable mention is actually, so one of the things that I kind of struggle with sometimes, as much as I love the Chaos Marines, one of the things that I kind of struggle with is this idea that like, dude, you're fighting in the 41st millennium. You were there. Did they Horus slew the Emperor? Um, You were there like, in the Horus Heresy, like you saw these Primarchs, you walked amongst them, and it makes them so different from like Uriel and Vesanius and all of the other current Marines, right? Now they're they're getting to see Rob, Robbie Bobby, they're getting to see Reboot, but they're not getting to see like they didn't get to see the others either, right? Like right. they weren't in this time of wonder per se, but then also this horrible time. So mine actually comes from Gate of Bones, and it's when Torvan Locke is remembering. He's remembering being on Istvan, and he describes Korax coming towards the tank he's in and nearly killing him. Mm -hmm. And it's just this, I liked it in particular because A, I love to be reminded, like, dude, you were there. Like, you were at Istvan. Right. This is ancient, ancient history. Most Imperial citizens probably don't even know about it, and you were there. That is so cool. But also, Korax is the whipping boy of the Horus Heresy. Do not at me. He gets the fuzziest end of the lollipop of all of the Primarchs. I Even just... more than Ferris Manus? Oh, yes. Mm. Ferris Manus at least gets killed early and doesn't have to see all of this crazy crap. The whole thing with the the Marines that he tries to make and the Alpha Legion and most of his Legion gets killed. It's just... And... A lot of his stories really show him as a very ineffective Primarch. There are some where he is kind of badass, but it was really nice 
Especially because the last book that I read about him was his Primark novel. Moving on. Um, so this scene was particularly great because it shows Korax in all of his glory, right? They describe him crunching on this tank and just ripping it to shreds and killing people without even, like... Hey, Korax, I mean, Korax was a badass on Istvan 5. That was, like, my, was. my only time I ever really have gotten to read anything about him was on Istvan 5. That and when he escaped as Fun Five is one of the uh, tales of one of the tales of heresy when Angron was like screaming for him to come down and face him. Everyone's like, "Yeah, we'll be right on that, sure." Yeah, Hold your breath, right? <laughs> We're coming right back. <laughs> we'll come exactly. down just for you, man. But no, but Korax was a badass on Fan Five, and I actually and I love that scene too because it was like that's right. He was amazing before Conrad Curse creeped me the hell out, but. I mean, Korax with his, you know, I know it's not real wings, but, you know, with his jetpack and he's flying around and he's just stabbing people with his claws, going through, Ooh. getting another one. And he was this close to killing Lorgar. Yes. This close. By that much. He, yeah. and it's just a nice reminder for me because I love the character so much. It's just, it's something so cool. And I like the way he describes him. And there is... There's a kind of reverence there, even. Like, even though he's a traitor marine and he's clearly anti-Imperium and not a fan of Korax because he clearly was involved in all that, there's still this, like, the dude was magnificent. Mm-hmm. Like, I just loved the scene. But it just gave me, like, this, oh, my God, like, jaw agape as I'm reading it. It was such a great scene. Loved it. And not, I can't even talk about your honorable mention because it was an oh my god yeah so i mean so this isn't an oh my god like in a god blight way oh my god yeah this was a i can't believe what i'm just reading and this has got to be the most um how would how would you put it horrific ignoble way just when you thought you knew the worst ways to die in warhammer 40k no, it was for a, a Necron machine that decided that, as we learned, you know, in Twice Dead King, what they actually are, decided to crack open a dreadnought like a walnut and put him through the meat grinder. And it was one of those, like, did I just, did that just really happen? Just happened. Just a horrible, horrible, horrific scene in general. Demeaning. Um, well, that's the thing too. I mean, talk about like these. This is a this is a dreadnought. This is an honored, honored warrior who deserved this. And no. And again, I think the thing that kills me the most is that you're not even really eating it. Well, no, it's just the like, meat grinder. Literally the meat grinder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there's not even a purpose to this. So awful. So awful. And horrific, but also, like, I think it was kind of a little bit of a flex on Graham McNeil's part to be like, hey, I still got it. <laughs> it's like, yes, you do, sir. Now please take it away. <laughs> please don't do that again, okay. sir. <laughs> I'm, I'm so good. No more, please. Nah. Yes. 
let's talk about that. Now, there's a little difference here because these mm. are the scenes that were like oh. shook. Just favorite scenes. Scenes that our fifth category is the favorite scene that just it was so important or cinematic. You just can't shake it out of your head. It really grabbed you and hung on there. What was yours? What was your favorite scene this year? Well, actually, I'm about to change it. Oh. And it's mainly because you already pointed this scene out. But it's actually from the same book, Swords of Calf, because I do think about this every now and then, just sometimes I forget where it's from. And it's the scene where uh, one of Uriel's, his uh, sniper says, Captain, I'm going to need you to hold very still. Oh my god, yes. I mean, I, I get chills whenever I, I think about that, because in all the Ten ways that could have gone wrong. No, oh my God, yes. But he was able to really figure out how to get this guy after all these years. And yes, he used <laughs> the Primaris Captain as bait. I mean, Uriel has been shot in the head once and lived, but I don't think he would with a Necron weapon. Just no. Saying. No, I agree. And it was oddly irreverent and insubordinate. Oh, also... it was totally. I mean, just he's like, I need you to be very still. <laughs> Such a great scene. And the fact that it it works. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I mean, we knew it was going to work because we're only 100 pages into the book. And Grim McNeil can't, if he's going to kill Uriel, it's not going to be that part of the book. No, no. Well, that and he knows that we would go find him in L.A. and burn his house down. Yeah, he would wake up one day and we would just be standing on our on his yard looking at him. Bruh. <laughs> but use the same tone of voice that my daughter does when she goes, bruh. Mm -hmm. Really, that, that book just had a lot of really good scenes in it. My favorite scene this year comes from Silent Hunters. The whole book. What is the void glass? What is this MacGuffin? I am always very wary of magical MacGuffin plots because the MacGuffin never really ends up being anything that's worthwhile. And you get to the end and you're like, oh, look at that. It's a cuckoo clock. Yay. I can totally see why people are killing each other over this. When you finally get to see what the void glass is, when everyone looks into it. And oddly, my favorite scene, obviously I love when Tagatumanu and when Tekaharangi look into it. I think it's great. I also love when the drug addict looks into it and he's like, eh, that's about right. <laughs> but, but my favorite is actually when Lilith Hesperax looks into it and she does not like what she sees. Like she is, she is the baddest bitch in the galaxy, especially in that room, right? She is just killing people left and right, does not care. She is the baddest of the Drukhari. She does not like what it shows. And I love when she's like, you take that thing out of here. She's just like, I'm done. This is no longer fun. Right. Like, that's all it took for her. And I kind of like that because I think it speaks to the Jakari on the whole. They are these horrible, awful, abusive. I mean, they're very dominant because they'll do whatever mm -hmm. because they don't want to be eaten. But, yeah, they don't really necessarily like having to face what they are. That's not fun. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like as soon as it's not fun anymore, they're done. 
It it makes them very childish. Well, yeah. <laughs> and there's something kind of fun about that. There's something kind of fun of just like, oh, huh, couldn't handle what you can give out, huh? I really loved that scene, and it just lodged in my brain all year. Like, that was actually one of the first... <laughs> One of the first awards, and in the back of my head, I was like, "Oh, yeah, that one," because that scene was great. It was pretty good. Your honorable mention. Ah, uh, yes, it's Caves of Ice, and it was the scene where we thought that Jurgen might be dead because he got stuck on the other side of a cave-in with all the. Um, it's either the Anvil or the Gene Stealers or the Necrons. You know what? That that book was a mess. <laughs> that book had everything. Yeah. Even had orcs, didn't it? It had orcs. Yeah, it did. It did have orcs, yeah. Mm -hmm. All was missing was the Tau and the Nids. I wouldn't say they were missing. Well, I guess Gene Stealers is part of it. Anyway. Mm. Anyway. But he even mentions, he's like, he doesn't understand why he's getting so upset. He doesn't really care. But no, he cares a great deal. You know, he doesn't even know that Jurgen is a, a, a blunter or a blank nope. at this point. Has no idea. It's just his well, familiar aid. They don't know for sure. Right. Like she mentioned something. More importantly, he doesn't understand why that should bother him as bad as it does. Right. But yes, it's a great scene because it shows a little human soft squishy side of him that he keeps denying exists. And despite Jurgen's odor, he does he does appreciate him and he would miss him. Honestly, there's like no better aid for him than Jurgen. Let, let, let's be real. Jurgen knows him so well. It was always right there with the right cup of tea very right cup of tea that he loves and it would be so sad to have Caiaphas and no Jurgen. I know my honorable mention to favorite scene actually comes from the Hellwinter Gate and it's the scene where Ragnar Blackmane is in the tunnels and he's like this is it I, I, on on uh, Cadia oh, yeah. this is it I'm going down. I'm going down with one last amazing last stand. And he screams, right? Fenris Hjolda. And when you hear the Yarnhammer pack, Jarl, like running into him. And he's like, all right. Like, doesn't even miss a beat. Mm -hmm. He just, oh, I got reinforcements. Oh, yeah, it's those guys. Whew, this is going to be a story. Let's go. Doesn't miss a beat. Just they come in there. It's nice and cinematic. And it's it's such a good ending and a good note for that group of people in particular right, right? Yarnhammer has been through so much they do mention Ragnar Blackmane they get to save Ragnar Blackmane they you know all of this stuff just comes together in this beautiful epic battle that's very Chris Radian right very on brand for him he's Such like oh scene. it's you guys I really don't care <laughs> we'll talk about it later pretty much, pretty much like we probably need to have a talk after this um, it actually kind of remind, reminded me of um, in the Doctor Strange movie when at the end and he's turning back time to save everybody and so Wong yeah. comes back to life and he's like I know I know I'm breaking the laws of nature and Wong's like well don't stop now <laughs> like <Right. laughs> we don't care just keep doing it 
It actually reminded me of my other favorite scene. I think I actually put this down as my, this might have been my favorite scene in 2020, maybe. But um, it's the end of uh, The Lords of Silence when Vorks is in there and Draken comes up and he's just like, Siege Master. And they just lockstep start fighting. I loved that seed, and this was very much right in line with that. So I was like, oh, the good guys get a good scene like that now, too. Yeah, because that was the guy that um, everyone thought was betraying Vorks. Vorks is like, he works for me. You guys, oh, right. You yeah, guys think Garstag. I'm so dumb. Yeah. Like, you guys I think love I'm that when so he's dumb. Like, it was Garstag. He works for me. Oh. I really have become like a hardcore Chris Wright fangirl in this book in particular. Yeah. I know. I know. I mean, shit, the guy got me to like Space Wolves. It's true. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Mr. Wright. Now, so. the time for our favorite antagonists. These are the villains that we either loved to hate or maybe we were cheering for them just a little by the end. I just found them um, amusing. Or just found them amusing, which is what mine is. Oh, uh, yeah. My favorite antagonist this year comes from Godblight, and it's Rodicus. And similar to Kugoth, you had read that short story, and you were like, that was not the Kugoth that is in Godblight. Rodicus has appeared in a couple places, and he's always very serious-minded. And in this, he was a little more mischievous, right? And I think it was because he was on an upper hand. Mm-hmm. But the scene that sold him as my favorite antagonist is when he's fighting Tigerius. And he's just like, oh, I've heard so much about you. I was expecting more. This is not very impressive to me. And the whole scene, I think he also says something. He's like, you know what the problem is with you Imperial Psychers? You're arrogant. And like, just watching them fight. And then, of course, his whole end gambit, right? Where he's like, oh, you go ahead and enjoy that book, Fabian. And he leaves, and then when he's taunting Kugoth, like, that's amazing. The whole time, because for most of the book, you're kind of trying to figure out, like, what angle is this guy playing? He's clearly not on Team Mortarian, and he's clearly not friends with Kugoth, but what's his angle? Oh. And I do like at the end when he's like, oh, by the way, Kugoth, when you wake up, you can refer to me as first of Nurgle's favor, because that's not you anymore just catty demon is catty and funny I mean and funny and I think it's one of the reasons again I do kind of like the Nurgle demons because they have a lot of personality and they do Rodicus has got it in space even the Nurglings have personality oh my gosh with their little giggles and their weirdness yes it just he he was a good antagonist he was Again, you're trying to figure out what's going on, and then when you figure it out, it's mostly just because of his personality. He's a little sassy. I don't like him, obviously. Like, I, I wasn't cheering for him, and I'm a little pissed off with the whole book thing. Damn it, Fabian! But he was so sassy and funny, and I laughed so hard at him. Again, I've heard so much about you. Expected more. Which was, like, all just a big taunt, just so he could get the book to Fabian like ah well look at the time this has been fun cheers oh that's my favorite thing especially when like Tigerius is like taking this serious because it's Tigerius and uh 
yeah, Rodicus is just like, okay, I'm out. Peace. And bamps. That has to be very frustrating. But I do like that at least Tigurius is like, something's up here. Way up. And that's <laughs> way up. Yeah, pretty much. Right? I, uh, yeah, Rodicus just won me over. He was probably, probably my, he was definitely my favorite. I think he was the best one that we saw this year. Yeah, I almost picked, I wanted to pick him, but I really tried to make things different from, from, from stuff that you picked, just so we have much more to talk about, unless it was like, no, it's going to be this no matter what. So mine actually ended up being Biter from Gazkol Thraka. That was just because you just love this guy who's just, you know, he was translating, but he didn't need to translate and he knew he didn't need to translate. He's just sitting there being all unassuming and so helpful and so kind to everybody. And then he goes on a murder spree. <laughs> it's like, wow, I didn't see that coming, but we should have because it's Norik, right? But wow. It's like, man, he had everybody fooled. He did. And all I could think about was that quote from Animal House. You fucked up. You trusted, you trusted us. us. Like, you did. You trusted the orc. And because, as you said, he was very unassuming. And I always was kind of like, thing feels wrong about this. So when it, yeah, when he goes on the murder spree, you're like, damn it, Biter. But, I hoped for better from you. Yeah, at the same time, like, ah, eh, that checks out. Yeah, <laughs> this is on brand. Yeah. As you said, shouldn't have been a surprise, but was. And he was fun throughout the whole book. Like his his commentary. Yes. And like when he's trying to describe things. And like Makari uses a word and he's like, well, it's it's kinda like like this. Like watching him try to equivalate stuff into Gothic was amazing. Cause you, I mean, because you can kind of tell that he was taking some liberties with that, which just made it even more fun. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Who? So, for my, my honorable mention, this was kind of a hard one for me. Because I felt like, I almost put Thraka. But I feel like you can't, nobody puts Thraka in the corner. So I couldn't give him the honorable mention. I actually went with Gita Bones. And this shouldn't come as any surprise if you listen to our podcast for any amount of time. I like me a good Iron Warrior. Torvan Locke was a very interesting character. I like that the Iron Warriors, and he was one of the more zealous, like, slash devout Iron Warriors, because he's a warpsmith. But was he the one that became, like, a demon in the end? He basically... I liked the idea because he had the lodge badge. Like he's just a guy who wants the brotherhood, and we keep seeing that over and over. Well, he and he was ready over. for he was the one who was ready for the long war to be over. Yes, and then he caved. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I did like when his friend is like, "It's the last time we're gonna see each other, man." And there's no hard feelings, right? Yeah, no hard feelings. We're just done now. Like you got to go and become the demon, and you got to do this and. Godspeed, buddy. Um, I just, I like a good Iron Warrior character. And there's something about the Iron Warrior, like the characters in general, that just the Chaos Warriors that want that Brotherhood sense and are just tired. And it seems to happen a lot in the Iron Warriors. And I think it's because a lot of them aren't devout. They're just like, we're just fighting to fight. 
this has no purpose. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It's it's a trope that I really like. And Torvan Locke was. I like my random iron warriors. I have a pattern. It's okay. Who was your honorable mention? Mine was Eamon Cole. He was one of the night lords in the Red Tithe, Karkaradan's the Red Tithe. And basically when, uh, gosh, what was his name? Shadwraith. Kind of like messed up everything in the end. And Eamon mm -hmm. Cole was like, well, tried it and your way. Out. And we're done. And they killed him and like, and later. <laughs> we're out of here. Right. No honor amongst thieves. Well, not, no, especially not, not with these guys. Really, I think what's makes some of these chaos guys, especially like the Night Lords, kind of fun is just the infighting with them. It's like, because he wants to take them down a path that the Night Lords are very much like, no, we don't do this with demons. This is not what we do. We've never been a part of this. He's like, shut up. This is what we're doing. All right, fine. We'll see it your way. Oh, you failed. Well, goodbye. <laughs> right. It is. It's one of those things, similar to the orcs, they're sometimes they're their own worst enemies. Mm -hmm. Like, y'all could probably get pretty far and do something if you could just stop fighting. And he in particular. Well, I mean, well, look at the Siege of Terror, right? They probably could have won right. if the Emperor's children didn't get bored. Mm -hmm. If everyone didn't make fun of um, Perturbo. You know... Mm -hmm. If they could all have had direction, it was the same thing with the orcs, right? If they could have had, they could have direction, they'd be unstoppable. But right, that uh, yeah, yeah, like it's it is one of those things. And by the end, you're just kind of like, you bastard, good job. I smirked. All right, <laughs> I well, who didn't? Who doesn't like a good smirk? Our seventh category is our favorite protagonist. These are the main characters whose like stories we're just completely and totally invested in and just love to death. Who's yours? I'll just go on ahead and say yours. No, no, say yours. What was it? I did last one. I went first last time. Okay, fine. We're alternating back and forth. It's the zipper, Gary. <laughs> it was Robbie Bobby. Lord Raboot Gulliman. Not, not Raw Booty. It's Raboot. Raboote Gulliman. Yeah. Uh, why? Why Gulliman? Shock us all. Show, I don't know if I can shock you all. You guys all know why I love Gulliman so much. I love him because he's really the smartest guy in the room, but he's humble enough to not always point it out. You know, which mm -hmm. is the problem that Magnus had was that he was literally the smartest guy in the room. He is smarter than Robbie Bobby tenfold, but... Yeah, an arrogance problem. Uh, and Robbie Bobby's so. very big on yes, I'm the smartest person in the room, but I like shining people with their with their own strengths. He knows when a war is lost. He knows when it can be won. And his like his thing with Frater Matthew. He knew exactly what the game Frater Matthew was playing, and he went along with it because Frater, one Frater Matthew is right. But he already knew he was right. He didn't need Frater Matthew pointing that out to him. He's like, yes, I know I can't do anything now. You've made too big of a scene. Um, how he handled uh, Mortarian. How he just, you know, can... How he's just... He's constantly just kind of pushing for the truth. 
trying to find out the facts, which is something that, my God, this Imperium needs. And in every book that we get with him, he's constantly still trying to find that truth, whether it's the, you know, um, uh, Watchers of the Throne or these in this in, uh, Dawn of Fire series or Dark Imperium. That's all he's doing. He is putting forward the best thing for the Imperium while he's trying to figure out really what happened over the last 10,000 years, as well as what can I do to fix everything that's happened in the mm -hmm. last 10,000 years. Yes. So he's just, for me, uh, just this, and the thing is like, I've liked this guy ever since reading his Primark novel. I really got to learn like a little bit more about him then because I really didn't know mm -hmm. anything. And just the more I learned about him, it's like, you know, I, I think I told you, like, I found this great quote about him that said, while he is ever the optimist, he is never the fool. And that's just him, him to a T. The guy, yes, he makes mistakes and he knows how to fix them, which is like what you can say, but more than what you can say with so many of the other Ultramarines, which is what makes him the Primarch, right? And not just a chapter master, one of the other Ultramarines. Mm -hmm. But definitely yours is a high second just because this was i mean that was the very first uh book i ever read and i'll let, let you go with it so mine comes from swords of cal and it is uriel ventress everything that you just said about robbie bobby i feel like is true for uriel ventress oh my god absolutely in a lot of ways he kind of is the heir apparent right like he is that embodiment of Gulliman he is very smart but he knows when to look for counsel and obviously not as smart as Gulliman but he but he also for counsel and like Gulliman he understands you can't always follow the codex to a T that there are yeah there are circumstances sometimes you got to think outside of the box and more importantly, one of the other things that he also has is that, again, that scene that I keep going back to with Bassinius calling out mm -hmm. and calling him, we're like, what the hell has happened to you? What are you doing? This is not our way. His first reaction was, I'm sorry, what? But then he thinks about it and he's like, oh my God, you're right. Like, he is such an introspective character. He can stay there and be like, oh man. And you remember, he even has that little moment where he's like, I lost some stuff going through the Rubicon Primaris. Mm -hmm. Like this was a, this was, this was maybe not the best decision. Like I, this is going to take some getting used to. And just, he does talk to people and he does take counsel and he's just a good character and everything about him. He's, he reminds me in some ways of like the Superman character where he is everything to save people. And just love him i always have it's similar to you like he's always just been one of those main characters that yes new Uriel ventures book slash story they're done right bought old and yeah basically everything you said about reboot say about him uh i think we both have the same honorable mention kai kai kai, uh, kai, kai, kai <laughs> What can you say about Caius Kane that we haven't already said tonight? He's easily, without question, one of the most complex characters in the 40k lore. He, I think it's a little bit of that, like the imposter syndrome thing we were talking about, where it's like, he sits there and he's like, oh, I'm just such a coward and I don't want to die. And oh my gosh, look how horrible I am. 
but you really are a great leader and you are not a coward like this uh, you know it's that but you know it's the way he phrases things you know especially like caves of ice because i already because now that I was familiar with the shtick and i got it and i am like howling reading caves of ice because he's like kind of giving a little intro background to himself and he's talking about how there's like you know, the problem with being a hero is that people have tried to find other nasty things to throw you in to get you killed and then when you come out unscathed by the skin of your teeth they find a nastier way it's like and like one of my favorite phrasings is still is like in the first 10 pages of for the emperor and it's when he talks about when he shows up and everybody's excited to see him and he's like oh no they're excited to see this is bad like just him being like oh god and i love the way he describes amberly when he first sees her like the idea that he has this like romantic side to him he's just he is so very human despite having this like veneer of being a super this like oh look at me i'm just a great model commissar there's there's a lot going on down there and a, a lot unlike Uriel Ventress, he is not very introspective because then he would realize that you only get to claim to be a coward for so long before you're just in denial, my friend. He's introspective in other ways. It's weird because he's introspective in like how he wants to put himself like, like you said, like as a coward, as someone who doesn't read the briefs, which he doesn't read the briefs, but at the same time, he is very, very smart. I mean, when they're down in those ice and he sees the black onyx, he's just like, oh, hell no, we are out of here. He knows exactly what that means. Well, and like, he just, when they come across like gene stealers and stuff, and he's like, oh, yeah, like at the end of, I think it's at the end of the emperor, when the two guardsmen come out and they're kind of dazed. Oh, yeah. And he just shoots them in the head and he's like, nope, can't have that. And he pulls the thing out and he's like, that's why. Mm-hmm. And that's where the tower like, mm, no, 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 no. Miss us with all of this. Um, oh, look at the time. We got to go. <laughs> except for the two. And when Caiaphas Kane's like, yeah, no, those, those, that's a little gift for them. Um, very shrewd, very pragmatic. But as you said, he's very smart. Like he has taken all of this experience that he has and he has committed it to memory. And he claims it's because he's a coward. But the truth is it's, He's just a smart guy. And, you know, and the whole thing about self-preservation, that's still being smart. I mean, he talks about how he walks into a room and he looks for places to hide behind. That's smart. That's what you kind of have to do in the 40K because you don't know who's going to come in guns a-blazing. It's always good to know where a good couch is to do a dive roll behind. Mm -hmm. And, like, yeah. He just, he knows immediately. He recognizes these situations. It's, and he knows how to read people. He definitely knows how to work them against one or against and with one another. Like, you know, like the scene that you said that you liked so much, right? Where he's just cites off the rule book immediately. And I'm like, it's just these little things that he knows when and where. And he just, it shows a tremendous amount of intelligence. He has the workings of a really great leader mm-hmm. he just needs to kind of recognize that and now so before we get to our best book of 2021 i have to say because this year because of the publishing schedule because of all the covid shutdowns and all the other insanity going on in the world we ended up actually reading a lot of stuff that was older 
So you may have noticed because we've mentioned Kaivaskan a few times. Right. Um, so what we decided to do this year was to break it up and to say the best book that came out this year and then talk about our best book that came out pre-2021. Being fair, my best book of 2021, this was really hard. Like, it, re- it actually like, was. Oh, this is so easy. It really was hard. It was. And I think I changed my, like, do not go and look at the revision history on our shared Google Doc because I changed things like 60 times. Actually, I've never looked at the revision history. It, it would be bad. Um, I finally, though, had to settle on my favorite book was The Hellwinter Gate by Chris Raitt. I, it was a big surprise for me in a lot of ways because I was kind of like, mm, on the first book. I was kind of meh on the second book. This one came out guns a blazing. It was definitely the Chris Raitt that I know and love. And I loved the characters. I loved the arcs. I loved, again, so many of the scenes and so much of the phrasing. It was just the book that, like, mm-hmm. checked all of my boxes. I don't, and I can just say that I loved this book. I don't have to have a caveat with it. Even though it is the third book in a series, that makes it kind of weird. But, like, I couldn't just be like, oh, go read The Hellwinter Gate. Like, you have to do some homework before that one. Um, it just definitely, it was the one for me. I loved it. And I keep, what ultimately made me decide about it is that I keep, talking about it and referencing mm. it that was the big thing for me what was your i'm the best christmas gift ever gift giver ever confirmed anyway that's true <laughs> so mine is also a third in a series and it was god blight by the one and only Guy haley and just this God, that one was so close on mine this i mean like you said this also just ticked on my boxes and it's something that i'm constantly thinking about like i do think about often about the emperor burning murgle's front lawn i you know i think about him you know possessing robbie bobby and how that could have possibly possibly you know affected robbie bobby um there's so many things that happened in that book that i do think about on a regular basis and I keep wondering like well where are we going to go from here like when we're done with the Dawn of Fire please don't do a Horus Heresy thing with the Dawn of Fire series I beg people oh my god please don't just, just yeah so like where is it where is this going to go I can't wait to see where it's where it's going to go from here because of the mm-hmm. everything is open of course you know they could always be like oh we're not waking up for a while so you know right. other things He's busy. But, but yeah, this was one, you know, because, and I ended up reading with the last, like, 150, 200 pages in Hawaii while you guys were surf lessons, I think. Yes. And I got to a certain point and I just could not put it down. And every now and then, Sean, my husband, would hear me go, oh my God. This is like, it's this book that goes like, oh, my mind is getting blown. So that's why it's my number one. What's my runner-up? I God, this one was hard for this me. This one was very hard because again, I didn't, I didn't want to put Godblight in the corner, which I know sounds weird, but ultimately I had to go with the Twice Dead King Ruin by Nate Crowley, and I'll tell you why. I really enjoyed the book, and it really surprised me, but especially with all of the stuff that we've been reading in the Indomitus Crusade. Hello, Chartreuse. 
I don't like the Necrons. I never really found them that interesting. They kind of just reminded me of like another flavor of the Eldar. They were kind of bored nobles who were dealing with the fact that they are no longer nobility. Um, they're undead zombies. I mean, I'm sorry, they're undead robots. Pretty much. They're Egyptian Terminators. And, well, I mean, they're basically the Tomb Kings brought into 40k. And I really don't know that authors knew what to do with them, per se. Like, I did like them in Swords of Cows, but that's where we saw the flesh eater guys that were just... The flesh wearers. Like, terrifying. Um, and actually, this... they were in a... Um, they actually came into a story before Swords of Calf. They were in one mm -hmm. of Robbie uh, McNiven's short stories about the Karkaridans. Yes, they were. And they pop up all the time, but they generally are just like this unstoppable... Like the T-1000 from Terminator 2, right? Like these just monstrous... They the don't have a personality. The ones in Caves of Ice were like that too, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. They're just kind of there. And they're so... And I understand because it, they are so alien to humanity, right? We don't even, like, know their language. We don't even really know what's going on. We just know that they wake up every now and then and God, are they hard to kill. Like, that's pretty much it. And so... I liked this because it kept it true to that nobility thing, but it definitely humanized them a little bit more. And you kind of got to see some more like, oh man, this would suck. Like you wake up X billion years later and wow, 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 wow. Like the people who were the dominant people, they're no longer the dominant people. Now it's these human things. What is going on? This is your land. Like. It would be very weird. You shouldn't and like have taken a the nap then. Right? But like when they talk about the people who just don't wake up or wake up a little half a bubble off. Uh, like the, um, oh no, Duke of Death Marks. Where he wakes up and he just starts killing other nobles because he thought it would be interesting. Like, I think The Infinite and the Divine was definitely the first book where I was like, oh, this is fun. But those were two characters that were very larger-than-life personalities, yeah. right? These were new characters, and I just... I have to give it my honorable mention because it completely changed and altered my perspective on the Necrons. And it was just really well-written. It was well-written. Yours, though, I waffled with your runner-up, too. Yeah, Gate of Bones... And the reason why I only waffled with this, because we've talked about this a lot. We talked about this in the original podcast for it. This probably would have been my book of the year, hands down. But the fact that that uh, custodies with the Imperial Guard woman survived the fall, I thought was incredibly weak. It, it just, to me, it um, lessened the impact of the mm -hmm. entire book and it kind of killed a lot of it for me. I have to agree. And I feel I I feel bad to be like, oh, it gets runner up because he didn't kill these two characters. Like that feels kinda weird. Um but we both did waffle with that. No, but it's like, um, so have you ever seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will yeah. Ferrell? Okay. So I think it's when Emma Thompson finishes writing her book and she decides at the end to not kill off the character because she realizes he's a real person. And Dustin Hoffman says, well, you know, it's okay. It would have been better if you had killed him. And this is kind of what, one of those, one of those things, like sometimes like somebody dying 
it's a necessary thing you know right. like it's actually one thing that the guy who plays agent colson would always talk about with joss whedon is that he would always say he's like do you really have to kill my character because he's kind of the bringer together and he's like no actually i really do because it's really important for this story arc it's kind of one of those things like i would have understood if the custodies didn't die totally 100 percent. but when she was there too i was like no nah, uh-uh no 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 that's i don't know why and there was even no purpose for it because she was nuts after that well they said like she's they're gonna have to watch her and probably put her down yeah it, it seemed like it almost seemed like with her it seemed like a cruel a, just cruelty for cruelty's sake right like oh yeah she's not what she was and they're probably gonna have to kill her to be clear it just yeah it seemed like a particularly cruel cut because yeah and it, again, I hate saying like, oh yeah, it's because, you know. But it's one of those things, like if it had brought something to the table with her being alive, that's one thing. But I think that's, that was the thing. It didn't bring anything to the table. It didn't. It really didn't. Which, that's hard. So, I put my original awards out of order. <laughs> Whoopsie. So, quick, quick calling in up at Audible here. So let's talk about our favorite books that we read that were published pre-2021 because we read a lot of really good books this year. It just happened to be older. <laughs> what was your favorite book that you read this year that was published Man, pre-2021? This, ooh, this should not be a surprise to anyone as it is Caiaphas Cain for the Emperor. The book is flawless. I don't even know what to say. About it, it is flawless. Like, I was really kind of worried because I hadn't read it in so long. And I think I said them on the cast. Like, it had been so many years. And I started reading it. And I was like, God damn, this book was good. It aged well. It does Like, I mean, there were some things where you're like, okay, this was definitely, like, written earlier. But it's my honorable mention. It just. It's flawless. And it's funny. It is, like. So funny. Actual laugh out loud funny and humorous and just. And like we even Absurd. said back on that podcast, and it's done in a way where it's not forced and over the top. It fits in with what is going on, and you could totally see it. It's just, I think it's just because of how his, like, so if you took this story, but didn't put it from his point of view, you wouldn't have gotten the funny parts, and it would have all have fit and made sense. 100%. But it's because you get it from his point of view and get his thoughts is what makes the book good character good dialogue good story like everything about it just works it's not just a silly book and i think my big thing about warhammer that particular book is that it's it's funny but it's not making fun of the universe it's right. funny within the universe yes it works it's not like hmm, look how stupid warhammer 40k is it reminds me spiritually of dave chappelle's prince sketch with the pancakes prince famously loved that sketch because it wasn't it was kind of Dave Chappelle like poking fun at him but not mocking him right and it's not him mean this is the same thing it's not mocking it's just having fun with the world kind of like the infinite and the divine or uh brutal cunning yes Dagabo's revenge I mean yes all having fun within the confines of the world. That's hard to do, man. Yeah. Especially, Satire is not easy. Especially in the grimdark future, there is only war. It's hard to make this shit funny. 
It's hard to make it funny and have it play and land. Mm -hmm. Completely is. My best book pre-2021, Storm of Iron. I mean, my God. I keep talking about it. Like, book of the year every year. I, well, I will say that I loved that book so much. And going back and rereading it, I was like, oh, God, I love this book so much. Like, every part of this book I love. I love Hanzo. I love, I just love the characters. And the little story at the end, even though that's brand new, that was the icing on my cake. But, yeah, Storm of Iron every year. I like me Chaos Marines, which apparently so do you, with your honorable mention. They're not Chaos Marines. They are... The Night Lords, my friend? Uh, the Karkaradans, my friend? It's the Karkaradans Red Tithe. Look out, world. I have found a watered-down chapter. I am behind. <laughs> it's the Shark People. Started with, you know, Edward or Albert with uh, Silent Hunters. We decided that because people were going off about how awful what Silent Hunters did to Robbie McNivens, they had nothing else to read. So we decided to read them. Loved those too. I, I thought they all fit with Silent Hunters just fine. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, those those books, they were they were fun in their own way too. Like I, they just, were. I really kind of love their idea of the red tide. It's like, we're just going to go to this penal colony. And oh, by the way, like, these prisoners are ours. <laughs> like, you can't do but that. I, yeah, we just did. They did. And my favorite part of that book is when you realize that the Inquisitors, that they're like, okay, erase all record of this. Like, oh, wait. How many times has that happened right? over the years? Yeah. That it was a fun book. I, Silent Hunters also, same thing. thing. I almost had that on there too. Because it was just Silent Hunters. Oh my gosh. That book almost made it into my top two. It was fun. But the Karkaradans books were just fun. The Karkaradans are just, they're a fun successor chapter. Yeah, they're loyalists, yet they're renegades at the same time. It's very interesting. It is very interesting. They're very secretive, very, are we night lords? Are we Raven Guard? Nobody knows. It's, I mean, they pretty much point to the Raven Guard in those books, but. I don't know. Well, Red Tithe, I thought they really pointed at the Night Lords. Mm -hmm. Because he, uh, Teka Harangi was like really pointing at, you know, with the Pale Nomad with Shadwraith about. Right. Anyway. So it's. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a fun. It's become my new favorite, are they, aren't they? mystery of 40k now this one generally we're kind of like spitballing for this next category like out in the middle of the, into the ether and just guessing but with that huge black library weekend re reveal this was actually another super hard category for me because they revealed all of this stuff and like the warhammer fantasy stuff i was like nah nah and then they started getting some 40k stuff and i'm like ooh, ooh, I, oh, ooh i want to read that one was too much information yeah and I'm, I'm there in yoga teacher training and she's texting me going did you see this did you see this like no i'm in training i'm so, like freaking out so then the she like time. starts sending me all these images I'm like ooh, 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 ooh. Mm. i want the thing <laughs> i think we were at hockey practice and i had nothing else to do because i was sitting in a freezing cold ice arena i um, i have just my okay this was really hard to do because i'm so excited about the here in black heart book and everything else that was coming out but 
my most anticipated for 2022, definitely Assassin Orm Kingmaker. And Robert Rath. And that's my, that's my honorable mention. Robert Rath. I'm I know. Sold. Robert I'm Rath. Assassins. Vindicari. Intrigue. Intrigue. I love it. Political, a good political intrigue novel with assassins who I'm already shipping. And Robert Rath basically gave me permission to ship them. Did he? Yeah. He was like, I, I knew that that was going to happen. And I was like, son of a bitch. You know? But also, I like the idea that it, I'm not crazy. Well, I mean, I am, but not like super crazy and weird. And I was like, ooh, I'm totally shipping them. And he's like, yeah, that's going to be a thing. I'm in. I'm so in. I still hate that I word. Just, huh? Shipping. Shipping. I. And it's mainly because my kids too. use it, so. Yeah, mine too. I was going to say, I do too, but it's just kind of entered the vernacular because I got a 14 year old. Although so. I, I've ruined sus for them. Because I started saying it and they're like, ah, oh, now that word sucks. I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I have the power. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, how are you just learning this? Although Because they never cared before what I had to say. Oh, mine like, has for a bit. I guess because if now I use something, she's like, you're using that wrong. I, oh, because I now know. I have a teenager. That's probably why it does change things. Mine is now officially 14. Yay. Um, yeah. And I know that you put this as your honorable mention mm -hmm. because it just, who doesn't love a good assassin book? Come on. Oh, hell, I even know. loved uh, that Horace Heresy book. Nemesis. It was all about those assassins. I really got into the whole thing with the Vindicari and the Calidus and the Eversor and the the Poison Girl. Oh my, I guess I was going to go all, all the way through them. But but yeah. I, I really like the idea of the Vindicari and the uh, Calidus. It's a really good natural pairing. We got to see it in the... Um, yeah, in the uh, very first uh, Hammer, Hammer and Bolter. Bolter. Mm -hmm. All about that too. Yep, and she just what kind is, of... What is your most anticipated... Sigismund. Let me, I can't argue with that one. You know, and because these, I know it's a horse heresy. We don't really cover them. Now that we're not doing the Patreon anymore, we're really not going to be covering it. But these books, these horse heresy character books have been so damn good. Valdor. We might have to do a bonus episode for Valdor it. Valdor was amazing. Luther was one of the best books written that year. Fight me on that. I can't. Right. And so Sigismund, I mean, Sigismund is such an interesting character to begin with. Um, like, I, I loved him. Basically, he had to hold Rogaldorn back from killing Euphrates Keeler and everybody. And they're like, your brother turned against you. How dare you? And Sigismund is like, no, hold on, hold on. Stand back, stand back. And then learning that he's the one who was basically founded the Black Templars, the angriest of the, the space Marines. angry Marines. Right. And when we got to see him in, um, uh, was it just called Legion? Black Legion? That book? Okay. When, you know, they get out of the warp and Abaddon's like, oh my God, Sigismund, buddy, how have you been? It's been a few years, right? And Sigismund's just like, 
I knew it. Ignores them the whole time. <laughs> My favorite of that scene is when Sigismund looks at him and he's like, I looked for you. I looked for you on the walls of Terra. And that's what Abaddon's like, oh, we're not we're not friends. This isn't going to happen, is it? Yeah, like, just Abaddon, just the face like, wait, I thought we were cool. We not cool? Oh, crap. Yeah. It was such an oddly naive and adorable moment for yes, Abaddon. Yes, it really was. Like, really? You don't understand? <laughs> like, you guys thought you were going to, like, hug? Talk about the old days and then he was going to come join you guys? Dude. That he was going to be like, hey, I'll give you, I'll escort you to Terra. Did you really think that was going to happen? Uh, who knows what Abaddon thought. But so, yes, the Sigismund I find very, very interesting. So I am looking forward to that. Who's writing that? John French. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So that was one that was almost on mine, too. We are going to have to do a special episode I just think for so. that one because those books have been so interesting so far. Like, I feel like we've learned so much, just little nuggets of lore here and there, right? And really understanding these iconic characters. That one is, well, and because oddly, both of those books, despite being not really Horus Heresy, because they kind of take place before and after and during like and it sounds like Sigismund is going to too it kind of does affect how you look at the 40k universe oh yeah Luther especially oh my god if you oh haven't god, read Luther Luther's. I don't care if you hate the dark angels you hate the lion go read Luther I hate Luther I hate the lion I hate the dark angels I don't find any of that interesting it was one of my favorite books that I read last year I'm not even a big Gav Thorpe fan and one of my favorite books that I read last year. Yeah, so don't take my word for it because Gav Thorpe, check. Dark Angels, check. Lion, check. Luther, check, check. I mean, that was like hit all of my boxes and Jen's like, oh, are we really doing this? Oh, God, I hate everything about this. Yeah. It was like the anti, like those boxes were not checked. Right. There was nothing near those boxes. And then, yeah, everything about it I loved. So highly recommend that one. My runner-up, though, is The Triumph of St. Catherine. I've been working my way through the Dany Weir. Um, well, I'm looking books. forward to it. I really, I mean, I, I, I am. I really am. And I like her style. I like her stories. Mm -hmm. I'm excited for a full-length book. I dig those collector's editions of the sisters' books. I mean, we have the Mark of Faith one back there, and we have another one that I can't think of what it was. Oh, it was just um, Celestine. I'm really excited to keep collecting well, that, those. They're very I'm, pretty. I'm looking at one right behind your shoulder of Ephrael Stern. Oh, yeah. Ephrael Stern was a really nice one. But um, I just really like the way that they're doing those. They kind of look like a Bible. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. They're, they're just really cool looking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just really excited for it. As a last note here, what was the favorite thing that you read that was outside of the book club? No surprise. Alpharius. You even My liked it, rose. too. I did. Very much so. It was very fun. It was funny. It was. And, yeah, it was. It explained a lot about Alpharius, especially 
if uh, you're trying to sort out like plot holes, you know, because I remember getting into a discussion with a few readers, either on Twitter or something, where basically, where I was saying that I didn't think that Dorne or Reboot killed, either one of them killed Alpharius, maybe not, neither of them killed Omega, and they're like, oh, but they would know it was their brothers because they feel, and it's like, well, turns out, not so much. So, and, you know, I don't, if you want to point out that, oh, that was just to, you know, fill in a plot hole. Fine. Fine. Maybe it was. I don't care. I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. And I thought it really flushed out those two characters. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit more about them and explained a whole lot more about them. Because, you know, there's always been the question of why doesn't Dalfarius have a home world? Well, now we know. Um, does the Emperor know there's a twin? We don't know. Um, and if you wanted to they know... also explain, because that was always a plot hole, plot hole slash question too, of like, how does the Emperor not know that there was twins? The warp. Yep. When they get scattered. And uh, if you want to know what it's like for the Emperor to raise a child, well, look at Alpharius, because he wasn't raised by the Emperor either. <laughs> the nanny did. feel like that book was basically the... Like, if you took the argument, well, hey, would the Primarchs have been better adjusted had the Emperor raised them like he intended to? I feel like that book was the thought experiment. Right. The answer is no. He would have always been too busy. And, yeah. And Lorgar still... And Lorgar would have been Lor. He still would have wanted to worship his dad because he was... uh, He always had the motivations for a priest. Yes, you could... It's very... It was because of how Corferon raised him. And sure, that's true. But I think he always would have had those tendencies. Uh, I concur. Yeah. And Mortarian still would be, you know, very bitter, no matter what would have happened. Lehman Russ, I think Lehman Russ would have still been the executioner. Reboot Gulliman would have been, like, the perfect little prince. Rogel Dorn, same thing. You know, Ferris Manus would still sit there being all bitter. Uh, Perturbo still would be upset that he was destroying instead of building i mean yeah like i think so one of my favorite episodes of batman the animated series is this one where this attorney this woman a da she decides to put batman on trial because she's like look you are the reason that we have all of these super villains and if we don't have you we don't have a joker we don't have catwoman we don't have any of this stuff well as the trial unfolds and she starts talking to the supervillains, she basically realizes that no, no, like maybe your afflictions and like the flavors that you come in might be a little different, but you would still exist. Right. Like it's not Batman. You're not, that's not the reason that you're here. It's, it's you. And um, it's actually a really great episode because it basically solves that argument of like, well, the superheroes basically their own, Right, right, right. Um, And it was always one of my favorite episodes. And I felt like that book was basically that episode in a nutshell. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. It was a really good one. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, My favorite, and this this is a cheat, and I'm sorry, but I loved it so much because I didn't read it. But it was outside of the book club. And it was the Angels of Darkness, the animated show on... um, on Warhammer Plus. Oh. 
I loved it. And Wait, one of the reasons that do you I mean I... Angels of Death? Angels of Death. Because Angels of yeah. Darkness is a completely different book. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's actually a book. This wasn't. Yes, Angels of Death. Um, I kept. I keep calling it Angels of Darkness, and my daughter always corrects me. So that is actually one reason, though, that I really liked it was that our whole family watched it, and my daughter got hardcore into it. Like, she now loves the Euro Trash Space Vampires, and yeah, she's a big fan. And um, she just the whole family really enjoyed it. And I can't spoil it because Carrie hasn't gotten there yet, but they deal with the Black Rage beautiful way like come at me on that one they handle it because they don't give away too much it was just great and it got my whole family into it we just had a blast with it it was again they need to come out with more content it is not a starties i understand that but it was i went into it with very low expectations and it skyrocketed over them just enjoyed it i know it wasn't a book but it was my favorite thing that we did outside the book club. Definitely that. Uh, did you have a runner-up you wanted to mention? Yeah, so just my runner-up is a short story. It's actually the very first story that Kybus Kane was ever in. And so I read it. Oh, right. I read it right before we read For the Emperor, because I figured maybe I should have a little slight introduction. I'm so glad I did, because it tells basically how he and Jurgen came together. Although this was his original story. And White Dwarf, which has made people like, okay, we must see more adventures of this guy. And it, man, just hit all the right notes. You know, there's no Amberly footnotes or anything. But it's kind of, it kind of talks about like, you know, he was supposed to be here because it's supposed to be easy. And well, the nids are here. So he's like, I am out of here. And he starts, he tries to flee. He happens to run into Jurgen. He's like, you're not going to leave me behind, sir. He's like, the hell I'm not. Ah, oh, crap. I really should go and save him. And it, I don't know, it was just very entertaining. I had a good time with that one. I think my runner-up, the favorite short story I read this year was that Labyrinth of Lost Souls by Graham McNeil. And it describes, and this was a hard one because we read two Uriel Ventures short stories mm -hmm. this year. That one, though, that's the one where he actually becomes Primaris. And I liked it because it was an interesting... I feel like it's a deeply personal thing to be cut, go through the Rubicon. And Uriel reacted poorly to it. Well, well, yeah, this was like after he woke up being Primaris and just... Yes, and he kind of is not... Doesn't know, doesn't know who he is, doesn't know where he is, doesn't know what's going on. the forge, he's attacking mm -hmm. his brothers, the furnace is kind of malfunctioning. Mm -hmm. It, yeah, kind of interesting because it also shows that this process isn't perfect. Right. Really, really enjoyed it. It was definitely something that I liked the flavor on it, and I liked Graham McNeil's take on it, and I liked the idea that uh, it's not a one size fits all. Now, it also kind of reminded me a little bit of showing that it kind of makes like you know Frankenstein's monster. You wake up, Ooh. you don't know what you got. Right. Yeah. You could go through and just come out the same. You could come out a little colder like Uriel did. You could come out and you don't know yet. I mean, Not like find out with Kato, like uh, Mephiston. You know, he mm -hmm. came out a little stranger than he was, like a little more. You know, and they kind of make it that he's now like the opposition 
Mm-hmm. I don't even remember anymore. It's been it, it's been so long, but you know, it's actually kind of given uh, Astaroth more reason. Like we should really put him down. <laughs> like you really want to put down our first our like first librarian here. I mean, chief librarian. Um, can can he die? Because like he already went through the black rage. <laughs> right. Something's not right here. But that was. I mean, that was our year in a nutshell. We read some yeah. really great stuff. Great stuff. Um, we really did. I'm looking so forward to 2022. Hopefully, maybe return to normalcy, at least in terms of, like, publishing schedule. Well, Knock but, on wood. I mean, we're starting off the year with Wolf Time. So that that's, yes. that's going to be a, a great start. I do not have my copy near me. Does Jen have her copy? I do. She does. It's heavy. Yep. Big Mama Jama. Yeah, so that's how we were going to start the year. So thank you guys so much if you stayed with us this whole time going through through the awards. Have a very Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. See you next year. With that, I am Alfarious. Get you some holly jolly red. <laughs> Looks so much red over here. See, and I'm it. just in all the loyalist colors because... You got your Paragon flag. You got your loyalist. sweater. Totally a loyalist. Yep. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. of the Warhammer 40k book club was hosted by Jen Bozier and me. Recording and editing of both the vidcast and podcast were done by me. The book club questions and discussion format were done by Jen, and all of our music is by Jingle Punks. The Warhammer 40k book club is a Warhammer LLC production. This is a Voxcast that even he, Cato Sicarius, would approve.